Good evening, Congregation of First Baptist Church. We start our Bible study back where we left off in the book of Ephesians. And we see in chapter 2, in verse 6, the results of our salvation. That God, through Jesus, has raised us up together with Christ and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, again, is our position in Christ. Positionally, we are saved, we are righteous, we are heavenly beings. Now, we know practically in our, our state is different, that we have a sinful body, that we make mistakes, that we're not uh, righteous, so to speak. But in God's eyes, through Christ Jesus, we are. So there's a difference between our position and our state, and we have to understand that. So sometimes the scriptures are talking positionally, and sometimes they're talking about our state. Uh, in Romans, Paul talks about the fact that he tries to do good and can't. Well, he's talking about his state, and that's a little different. The state is practically actually what we are day to day, but our position is what we eternally are in Christ. And we're eternally saved, eternally righteous, and eternally his. Verses seven through nine and eight and nine are some verses that are probably etched in gold in a lot of places because they're two of the great salvation verses of the whole Bible. But let's look at verse seven, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In other words, in eternity, we'll be praising God because of his grace. And in the ages to come, we'll, we'll know this grace and, and how great it was and how wonderful it was to bring about our salvation. In verse eight and nine, for by grace are you saved through faith. The means is grace through faith. Grace is God's mercy, undeserved mercy, I might add. We don't deserve it. And it goes along with the rest of the verses. We're saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus to good works. But we're going to get into that as kind of a separate issue, although not really. But we're going to talk about salvation first. And I mentioned before, I may have mentioned these, but I'll mention them again just in review. We are trophies of his grace. And every one of us who is saved, we are just simply a trophy of grace. We are an example of what the grace of God can do. Paul said that I am what I am by the grace of God. And God took a religious zealot, a man who had murdered Christians and made him the greatest, possibly the greatest of the apostles. And he is an example of the grace of God, what God's grace can do, what a revolution took place in his life when he found the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly when we talk about trophies of grace, Paul is one of those trophies of grace. And we all are in Christ Jesus. We are saved by grace. That's the means. That's the means of God's love. God loved us always. But until Christ came 
And it says, grace and truth came by Christ Jesus. He brought the love of God down in a practical way to us. You see, without Christ coming, we still would be somewhat distant from God. But he made the way possible by grace. And he was an exhibition of grace. We're saved by grace. That's the means. We're saved by faith. That's the method. How are you saved? By placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We are saved by faith. And the verses here say, we had no part in it, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm going to read some other verses here. In Romans 6, 23, the ways of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Romans 5 also talks about the gift of God. It's not of works. It's not of works. It's redundant to say that. It's not of works because Christ did all the work on the cross. He died for sins. He died for our sins on the cross. And because he died for sin, and that was the necessary payment for salvation, we had nothing to do with that. All our sins were in the future. And when we accept him, all our sins are forgiven, past, present, future, and in our life. But all the sins were future to him when he died. So to say it's not of works is just kind of almost redundant because it couldn't be works. If the Bible says in Galatians 2.16, Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God for Christ. If righteousness, if, if heaven could have come by the law, then Christ died in vain. In other words, if we could get to heaven by our works, why did Jesus come? There would have been no need really for Jesus to even come. We would have just worked, done the best we could, our good works, and got to heaven. But heaven is not cannot be that way because see, it is our sin that separates us from God. And this is why it can never be of works. And Paul explained this, and I, I don't want to go in depth with this, through his epistles, but if you just read the epistles of Paul, he goes in Romans and other places, Galatians, goes in tremendous depth with this subject because theologically it needs to be explained, but you need to understand that if I am a good person, and, and let's say I was just the best person in the whole world, I still have sin. And no matter how, and Paul makes this point, no matter how good I am, no matter how many good works I have, it doesn't remove sin, you see. That's the problem. Even no matter how good we are, it can't remove sin. And if it can't remove sin, we can't be saved. And so to say it's not of works is, is almost a redundant issue in salvation because you have to understand the barrier between us and God is our sin. And how are we going to take care of that? There's only one way. And that's for God through Jesus Christ to forgive us. And that's why Christ came. That was the whole purpose. And Jesus did not come to be an example or a religious leader. He came to be a savior. That's why his birth announcement was, for to you is born this day in the city of David. They didn't say a reigning king. They said a savior is born. Because Jesus the first time around came to be the savior. He's coming again as a reigning king, but that time is yet to come. Okay, well, we're going to move on because that is, we can labor on that point forever and go through two or three books with that. 
but just suffice it to say that that's the point that's made there. Uh, and we need not boast about our salvation because we have no part in it. We have no part. He said, well, I had faith, yes, but the Holy Spirit led you to that. It says he will, in John 14, he will convict the world's sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, the Holy Spirit works in the heart of everyone who's a believer, uh, who comes to belief. And so therefore, the, God has worked in your heart before you believe. And so therefore, what, what boasting is there? That you had faith in Christ, that you finally quit telling God no and responded to him? Uh, there's no boasting in that. There's no uh, accolades to that. And I, we need not boast about our salvation. It is by grace, undeserved mercy of God and we, that we are all saved. Thank God for it. Remember the words of Jesus, it is finished, and it was the finished works of God. Well, I want you to refer you back to Romans again. Let's go to Romans chapter 6, verse 18. And we're going to talk about that verse in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, it says in Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus into good works. Now, this is what God has done. He has come into our heart. He has created a new person. And it says he has ordained that we should walk in good works that he has created us for the purpose of doing good works. It's amazing good works can't save us, but and nor can good works keep us saved, but God has ordained that we should do positive things for God. And, and this is part of what I'm talking about here. Romans 6 and verse 18, he says, being made free from sin, you become the servants of righteousness. So we were slaves to sin, but, but Paul says now you can serve God righteously. And that's one of the reasons that God saves us, so we can do his work. You know, that's one of the purposes that God saved. He didn't save you just so you can have a, have a heaven party the rest of your life and say, I got my fire insurance, I'm ready to go to heaven, I'm just going to wait here and have a good time until then. No, that's not why God saved you. God saved you with a purpose. He has a purpose for your life, for the, every, the life of every believer to find some mode of service. Do you know the day that you were saved that God gifted you with certain gifts? He gave you gifts. Think about that. Are you using those gifts? Are you using what God has given to you? The resources, the capital, the time, talents, abilities, gifts? Are you using the resources that God has given you for his purposes? If you're not, he is going to hold you accountable at the judgment seat of Christ, and that might not be a pleasant thing. So understand that uh, salvation is not a license to just have a heaven party here on earth. It's a license to serve Christ. And that's what Paul says he starts off with verse 20. For when you were servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. And then verse 22. But now being made free from sin, you're become the service to God. You have the, your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And that verse is right before, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We often read that verse and don't think about the subsequent prior verses. Now here God says we are created. He's speaking of our new birth and creation in Jesus. Maybe 
and and we can get into a discussion here, but we won't do it. That's a sidetrack and say, well, you know, if I were born with singing ability, then God preordained that I would have, not necessarily. Uh, because you use natural talents that you were born with genetically, uh, I, I don't know that God necessarily put them there. I'm not going to say they necessarily didn't. Okay, that's a, that's a deep theological discussion we won't get into. But then we don't need to get into it. But those are natural abilities. I'm talking about spiritual abilities that God has given us. You may be, have the gift of giving. Are you, are you giving? Are you using it? You may have the gift of helps. Are you helping people? You may have the gift of evangelism. Are you using it? Are you evangelizing? So on and so forth. There are many uh, gifts in the New Testament. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, later in this book. It talks about in this book, the, the gifts. So we'll get into that gift discussion then. But notice the wording here. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. It's the Old Testament illustration of Jeremiah of God taking the clay and molding it. You see, we are the clay and God is what? The potter. He is making and designing and creating. And most Christians who have followed Christ in an obedient manner over a number of years know that there have been changes in your life. We, we feel that. We know that. Uh, I am far different of a person than I was when I was young. And we all change. You say, well, that's just maturity. No, spiritual maturity. In Christ, we change. That's what God, that's what God's work is. When we have the new birth, we're a new creation, new creature. And he is molding us. He's taking off the edges. He's refining us as gold and he's doing things in our life and sometimes we're, he's putting us through trials and tribulations to create a better person we're going through a lot of things right now and we can look at the situation in the world and the stay-at-home thing the tension the stress and all that is caused the fear uh, so many of these things we're talking about now, domestic violence is on the rise, addictions on the rise. Look, so many things, we can respond to these things negatively or we can respond to these in a positive way and come out of this situation that we're in a better person than we went in if we seek that. And I know that it... I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, 45 years, this has thrown a curve to me. I've never had to face anything like we're going through right now. And so I've had to internally look and, and spiritually look at things and pray and make some decisions and, and do some things and so on and so forth spiritually because God has even thrown... I'm a, me, and I consider myself a mature Christian, a mature Christian a curve. And, and so if you're a younger Christian in the Lord, I can't imagine the difficulty you may be having with this, but that's okay. 
God is, we just have to understand, God's molding the clay. He's still molding the clay. I'm still clay and he's still working. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. And we just have to understand that. And once we understand that and accept that, that we are servants, we're clay, he's molding us, then really anything that comes our way, we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, called according to his purpose. And let me just share with you this. We're all called according to his purpose. Every one of us. I don't care if you're a deacon. I don't care if you sweep the floors of the church. I don't care what you do. You're called according to God's purpose. So just be knowledgeable of that. Understand that you mean a lot to God. So, okay, we're going to move on for that. The word workmanship comes from a word that means the end product or a thing being made. The original word came from a weaver who would take threads and weave different threads together for a beautiful garment. So God is trying to make something, take some old thread, that's us, and make a beautiful garment out of it, okay? God's trying to take some clay and make a beautiful sculpture. So understand that that goes back to that trophy of grace, amen? And he created this, it says he created. Now that that brings to us the idea of ownership. And he has redeemed us from sin, and he is our owner. He is Jesus' is Lord, the last I checked. And I think he will be tomorrow and the next day, Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's Lord of our life. And that means he controls our life. He's in control. And he is Lord. And we need to acknowledge him as such. He's, he owns us. He bought us. And uh, so we just uh, expect him to be Lord. Good works, uh, by the way, are the end result of salvation. And we're going to look at some verses here on over. And we're going to look at first, first we're going to look at is First Timothy in chapter 2, verse 10. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. But that some women, that which becometh women professing godliness with good works, and it mentions good works. And then in 2 Timothy 3.17, that the man of God, so we talk about women now, that the man of God, that means anybody man, woman of God, may be perfect, and that means mature, thoroughly furnished, completely equipped. That's what that means. So let me read it, that, that the person of God, the child of God may be mature, completely equipped unto all good works. Now you could cross-reference Ephesians 6 with that, the different parts of the armament of God's people. But we are completely equipped with all the good works, for good works, and two good works, for the purpose of good works. And then on over in Titus, we'll read that one. I don't think we'll go any further. Titus 2, 
and verse 7. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, this is faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm costly, they which believe in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So good works, we are to do them. Matter of fact, God has equipped us, it says there in that one verse, equipped us for the purpose of good works. And that equipment, like I said, you get the idea of a soldier. And again, that's the illustration in Ephesians 6 that Paul gives of, of a soldier having the armament, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness. All the spiritual things that God has given us is for the purpose of good works. What are good works? Well, good works is as broad as the ocean. Anything you do for God in the name of Jesus it's like they always say, a cup of water in Jesus' name. If you're giving somebody thirsty a cup of water in the name of Jesus, that's a good work. You know, anything. Sharing Jesus with somebody, that's a good work. Ministering to somebody who's hungry, that's a good work. Or somebody in need. Uh, talking with a, a fellow believer, or, not a, or an unbeliever who is suffering uh, anxiety, stress, fears, uh, trying to help someone, minister to someone. These are all good works or manifold and many. Uh, so it's a broad subject, teaching the word. And we could go on and on and on. When you talk about good works, uh, we could do a whole thing. What are good works? And just anything we do for God positively that's in his name, that's a good work. So... Do some good works this week. And by the way, don't wait. Do it this week. Do it today. Do a good work first thing in the morning. Put it on your calendar next tomorrow morning, your list of things to do. Number one, good works. Okay? Amen. And so let's just get moving with that. Okay, in verses 11 through 22, here in Ephesians 2, it talks about the church. We began to talk about the church. And remember, Ephesians was a book written to the church at Ephesus. It, and what kind of church was it? Extremely good church. It was a very good church. So we need to understand that. And it says, let's look at verse 11. Wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, you were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision of the flesh made by hands. So we can surmise from that, although we know there were Jewish people in the church at Ephesus, that it was predominantly Gentiles. So we know there were Gentiles there. We know there were Jews there, obviously, because Paul and others were there and it mentions some of them. But these were predominantly Gentile believers. Uh, and he reminds them of who they were. They were part of those who did not keep the law. They were part, they were alienated from the uh, nation of Israel. They were worshipers of many gods. They were pagans. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, and having no hope without God in the world. And we can say that of all of us as unsaved individuals, that's us in the church. 
We were no, had nothing to do with the covenant of promise of God. We had no hope without God in the world. And that's where we are today. If we don't know Christ, those things apply to us. No hope without God in the world. Who wants to be in that situation? But that's where we are without Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes were afar off are made nigh or close. Why? By the blood of Christ. And uh, I want to reference that by turning to Acts chapter 20. And I want to read this, if I can find it. It says in Acts 20, verse 28, talking about the church, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. The church is covered by the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ creates the church, makes it possible. His precious blood. You know, I, through the years, I've heard all kinds of weird theological things, and I, I never forget somebody saying, well, the blood really wasn't important uh, is that Jesus died. And I said, oh, wait a minute here. And my Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. I would beg to disagree. The blood of Christ, we are saved by the precious blood of Christ, scriptures say. And I would say that doctrine would be in very much an error. We, without the blood of Christ, we don't have forgiveness. We, we have his blood. And here it points it out numerous times through scripture that we need the blood of Christ. So it tells us here, who we are, or excuse me, who we were. And then it tells us who we are in Christ Jesus. Amen? And I thank God that I'm not who I was, but who I am. And then there's three phases of that, who we were, who we are, and who we will be. It's like this old woman said in the church, she says, Pastor, thank God I'm not what I was. I'm not what I should be, but thank God I'm not, I'm not what I was, and not, but I'm going to be better. And so we are in Christ Jesus. I'd like to read a verse from Galatians on over. Oops. Galatians, I turned too far. This is a new Bible for me. <laughs> This is the Spurgeon Bible. It's the King James, but it has Spurgeon notes in it. Galatians 3 and verse 28. You knew it wasn't going to use anything but a King James Bible anyway, didn't you? And uh, now I'm not, I'm not one of those people. If you have an NIV, uh, you're not out of the will of God. But uh, it would be for me because I've used the King James all my life. Uh, 328. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that tells us something that through the barriers, the barriers that have been placed there in society are all broken down by the blood of Christ. Amen? We have believers of every color, every ethnicity. We are all one 
in Christ Jesus. I was amazed to find out that the number of Baptist churches in the world, that the continent of Africa now has more Baptist churches than we do. So if we're Baptists and we want to say that, well, we're Baptists, Southern Baptists, and we're predominantly white, well, we may have a problem with that because we may not be predominantly. And there was another denomination, I'm not going to mention it, recently voted to move conservatively on an issue. And it was because of the churches they had planted overseas, I love this, had voted to move back to a biblical base of operations. And I just rejoiced in the Lord. The American churches were liberal, but the, <laughs> the churches that wanted to go back to what the Bible said were overseas, and they outvoted the American churches. Thank God. That's why you start missions. I remember I was uh, pastoring a church one time that was a mission church. It turned out it was a mission church of two churches. And I want you to know, those two churches that had sponsored our church disappeared. So sometimes the mission becomes the church. And, and that's exactly what happened with Jerusalem Church in the beginning. Jerusalem sponsored Paul and he went to Ephesus and started the church there. Well, the church in Jerusalem by, by 70 AD disappeared. So the mission became the church. And that's why we have to be about missions. Uh, it's so important. So we had here the church at Ephesus. How had God broken down the barriers there? Well, let's go back. What was the church of Ephesus like? Well, the church of Ephesus, we know that that's where Diana of the Ephesians were. There were people involved in idolatry. That was a big business. And Diana of the Ephesians, there were definitely Greeks there. There were other peoples there other than Greeks. And there were other people there other than pagan worshipers. But they all came together, some of them rich, some of them not, some Jewish, many Gentile or non-Jewish came together, the barriers were broken down, and they started the church there at Ephesus. And so as we look and understand what we're reading here, when Paul talks about we're all one in the blood of Christ, we're made nine by the blood of Christ, and then what we see in Galatians, that we're all one because of the blood of Christ, we begin to understand some things. Then look at verse 14, and here's what he says. For he, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one, and this is the same idea as Galatians, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Who was Paul? Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Yet Paul is here at Ephesus. Ephesus, mainly Gentiles. <laughs> Paul says, look, you don't have to worry about me being a Jew, you being a Gentile. God has broken down that wall. He has obliterated the partition between us. The partitions are what man put there. And God breaks them down. And now he mentions a lot of times male and female. And you say, why does he do that? Uh, you know, I've heard a lot of people criticize Paul saying he was a male chauvinist. Well, you know, I'm here to tell you that is the farthest thing from the truth I've ever heard. You have to understand in the culture of that day, in the Middle Eastern culture 
and uh, Greece and, and Rome. 60%, first of all, 60% of the world were slaves, okay? And women really had no standing in society. Uh, matter of fact, uh, women were still traded like furniture. Uh, and slaves were treated as the same way. But Paul, if you think about the book of Philemon and other places, Paul stands up for these people who were slaves. He stands up for women. He says women are equal before the Lord. Before in Christ, we're all equal, male or female, Jew or Greek, doesn't matter who you are. As far we have equal standing before the Lord. So we need to understand that. And so Paul was the first one to declare equality for all people in Christ. Because what? We're all one in Christ. And so when I hear that, that thing, because Paul later said that, you know, pastors should be men and so on and so forth. But I hear that criticism. I said, what does that have to do with equality? You know, women had at first under, under Christianity, for the first time had been given full standing with men in the church. And as, as a human being, as a person with rights and, and we're not, we're people with souls and the same with slaves. So, so who was Paul? Paul was a liberate. Uh, in that way, Paul liberated women and slaves. And he warned the masters of slaves to be careful how you treat them, especially if they're brothers in Christ. God's gonna hold you accountable for what you do with these slaves. And so Paul really, when you think about his day and the culture he was in, they looked at Paul, Paul was way out of a limb in those areas. He was probably further more progressive than we would ever give anybody at that time. And so you have to understand in his culture that Paul was, was definitely not a male chauvinist. That's just bogus for anybody to say that. That's so far from the truth. And I hear a lot of things like that because of things Paul has written and uh, because of the structure that God has put in place as far as leadership. That doesn't mean that, uh, I always say that doesn't mean anything uh, as re regarding equality. For example, uh, I'm not the president of the United States but you know, before the law, I have equal standing with him. Do I not? Sure. I have the same rights that he does. Why? Because that's the nature of things. It doesn't mean that I'm president or I'm, I have to be up here. We don't have to be up here to be equal before God or before the law. And so that's our whole system of law is built on that very premise, by the way. Okay, moving on. But he has broken down that wall. And, he, and why did he do that? He did that to make the church. Uh, let's look in, in verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And he, in order to do that, he took away the ordinances. He took away sacrifices. He took away 
the dietary laws, uh, and of course, some people would argue with that, but I don't. Uh, I, I go back to where Peter was offered by God all the unclean things that God told him to eat. Uh, I think at this point, the, all the ceremonial, all the dietary laws were changing. God was removing that. Now, God has never removed his holy law. And you say, the ten, for example, the Ten Commandments. You, you say, why is that? That's because that law always existed. People don't understand that the Ten Commandments uh, did not establish the law. It confirmed the law. Because God tells us these laws were already written in men's hearts. And I always ask people about the Ten Commandments. Was it wrong to steal or kill before the Ten Commandments were written? <laughs> and they always say, oh, well, I never thought about that. Was it wrong to be an idol worshiper before that? Certainly it was. So these things did not affirm or establish the law. They merely confirmed what a man already knew in his heart. So we have to understand that about the law. So Paul has made and reconciled in his body, uh, let's verse 16, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, the enmity being the law, and came and preached to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. Now, them that were nigh are, of course, the Jewish people. And so, as we have here, he has come, he has, he has brought and made the church, created it as one, and we are created to be one. We're supposed to be unified in Christ Jesus. We have one Lord, one faith. There's one baptism. And finally, in verse 18, for through him we have both access by one spirit unto the Father. Now he begins to relate the fact we have one spirit, one Lord, one baptism. There, in that scenario, it also gives an admonition to the church that we're always to be united. I didn't say that we always agree. Some people misunderstand that. The church doesn't have to agree on everything to be united. Uh, we don't have to agree on a lot of things. Uh, as long as we agree on the basic major doctrines of scripture, we can disagree about a lot of things. I have brethren that disagree. There are some friends of mine that disagree uh, on all kinds of theology. Some people believe in a rapture. Some people don't. I do. But, you know, I don't, I'm not going to sit and argue about things that are minor doctrines with people because they're not important. You see, we have a admonition to be unified. That means we need to focus on what we agree on, not what we disagree on. And there's some people that just get it in their mind, they want to focus on what we disagree on. Well, you know, that's fine. Go over to the corner, have a, have a sad party by yourself. But I don't do that. And because the church is supposed to be unified. And uh, we may disagree. I, I remember one time I wanted the church to put a certain color of carpet in the fellowship hall, and they voted against me. But that's okay. When I got through, I think what they picked out was better than what I had in mind. So you know what? We don't always have to agree on everything. We just have to be unified. Uh, we, in fact, we have to agree to, be, to disagree. And we can disagree without being disagreeable. 
And I think that's the important thing too, because in what is what does the Bible say? In all things, love. In all things, love. So at the end of the day, we have to love each other, be loving and kind and respectful. And I, I think uh, the world is not like that at all today. We don't even respect the office of president anymore. I mean, we've seen that over the last number of years, many years, and it, it's happened with the last two presidents, I think. And people are not respectful to the office, and I have a problem with that because I think we should be. And uh, I corrected people on the last president. I corrected people on this president. Be respectful to the office. But people are not respectful. People are not loving. People are not kind today. And so the challenge for the church as we're one is to be kind and loving and agreeable. Not that we have to throw away our personal feelings about things, share them. But at the end of the day, whatever the church decides to go with, the body, let God speak, pray, and let God speak through the body. See, that's how God speaks, through the body. Now, we anguished for a long time about having a drive-up service. Well, we finally did it Sunday, and I think it was very successful. I think it was done in the correct timing. I think timing is an issue. You can do something right, but do it in the wrong timing, and it's wrong. And I think we brought, we got that right in there at the right timing. I think that's the key issue. And listen, folks, we may not, you and I may not always agree, but I love you. And you may be right and I may be wrong, but let us be unified in Christ. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And you know what? The church that's one can do so much more than the church that's divided. The church that divided is doing nothing. It's going nowhere for God. It's not going to accomplish anything. And so we as a church, let us, well, we can't join hands, can we, at this time? Let us spiritually join hands. <laughs> let us spiritually join hands together and be one, one in the Spirit, one in the Lord, and be a mighty unified army for Christ. And that's what Paul is calling the Ephesians. They are, they were united, and he's calling them again to understand their theological reason. The, one of the re and that is simply, we are already one. Do you understand that? We're already one in Christ. So don't act inappropriately. If we, if we act like we're not, then we're not doing what we should. Well, We've come kind of to an end here. Let's close with a word of prayer tonight. And I pray you were blessed by the Bible study. Uh, I look forward to another drive-in service Sunday and I hope you can attend with us. I uh, urge you to be safe and at the same time to be cognizant of what you can do to help people at this time. Give somebody a call in the church. Encourage them. Y'all call each other. Call each other. Don't wait on the deacons or me to call you. Call each other. Call your Sunday school class. Reach out to them. Share prayer. Pray with them over the phone. I've been praying with people over the phone. Pray with them over the phone. Just share some things with each other. Uh, find out if people have needs. Try to meet those needs. Try to share Jesus with somebody. Maybe share a post about Jesus on your Facebook. There are many things you can do right now. 
God can use you as a mighty warrior. Pray, pray. This is a time of prayer reflection for the church. We should be praying. We should be powerful in our prayer right now. There's so many things. God has given us an opportunity here. Let's use it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Bless us. Be with us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray for those in need. There's so many sick in our church, Lord, suffering, and we just lift them up and pray your blessing on them, and we thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.